Welcome to episode three of Think Aloud, where you'll hear from the people shaping arts and culture today. I'm Harriet Fitch-Little, an arts journalist who has spent so much time at the South Bank Centre this summer that it is starting to feel like, well, not quite a second home, but at least a kind of holiday timeshare in a prime location on the banks of the Thames. Um, but as is always the case on this podcast, I'm here today for, what's that phrase, and now for something totally different. Uh, I'm here to speak to some of the acts who'll be performing at the Unlimited Festival in early September. Unlimited is a five-day festival showcasing the work of the world's most talented disabled artists, which was born out of the Cultural Olympiad in 2012 and has run every two years since. Coming up, I'm going to be joined here by the woman with the best decorated prosthetic leg in London, Jackie Hagen. Later, we have a regular burning question feature where we rope in an expert to field a difficult question that you may have always wanted to know the answer to, but never quite thought to ask on you how to. This episode it is how should people, particularly able-bodied people, speak about disability? The very, very funny Jess Tom, founder of Tourette's Hero, will be tackling that one for us. We also have a Think Aloud exclusive, an interview with the blind musician Baluji Srivasta, leader of the Inner Vision Orchestra, who will be performing at the Southbank Centre as part of Unlimited. So in episode one of Think Aloud, we spoke about the Meltdown Festival while it was happening. Then in episode two, we spoke about the Golden Man Booker Prize after it happened so that we could bring it to you with all the spoilers. And now for something totally different, we are going to be talking about something which hasn't happened yet, which is the Unlimited Festival, which is at the Southbank Centre at the beginning of September. But thankfully, I have one of the performers with me here to help us work our way through this new preview format. I'm joined by Jackie Hagen, who will be performing in her show This Is Not A Safe Space on Saturday the 8th of September. Hello! Hello! <laughs> uh, we're sat here in the artist's bar in the Southbank Centre to set the scene, which is... It's very nice. Well, from what I can see, though, it's not a bar and it's got I mean, no it's artists shot. in it. Yeah. <laughs> Other than us. Now, Jackie, your Twitter bio, which is the best place to start all interviews, oh. uh, <laughs> describes you as a Joewood Fellow, as the winner of many, many awards, and <laughs> as a working class queer amputee. Now that we are here in person and not limited by character counts, mm. um, would you like to tell me a bit more about who you are and where you yeah, come from? Yeah, sure. I'm a, a stand-up comedian, poet, basically anything where you get a, a microphone and I make solo shows. And where I'm from is a place called Skem, which is it's onomatopoeic. And it's it does... my favourite joke. No one ever laughs at <laughs> ever. <laughs> it does sound like a made-up name, which scam. Yeah, it's my inheritance, isn't it? I'm not going to get a real inheritance. So what I've got is scam. It was one of them places in the '60s that was like a, a new town that they created as like a utopian dream for the future, and it didn't go quite right. So now it's studied on the geography GCSE syllabus as a failed social experiment. So I'm very proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very singular place to grow up. Does it make it onto the syllabus in Skem as well? The, uh, <laughs> the failures of its own We've got to go and visit Skem. <laughs> Let's go outside and look at subways and a, a man shaving a dog. No, we got taken to a brick factory instead. Where did you go? On the geography field trips? Yeah. Got no memory. Nowhere. Just the classroom. Just... <laughs> 
by the time you were doing field trips, they banned them because of health and safety. Here's a picture of a pond. Imagine how it feels. We counted pebbles on the beach once. Wow. When did you start performing? Might be the best question to start with. I started performing when I went to university. I, I went mad. I had a nervous breakdown in like third year. I was doing philosophy and it was all very pompous and so um, it just did me head in too much and I didn't realise until like second year that I was I was working class and that's why I wasn't quite getting on with everyone it took me a while to figure that out when I was in this sort of halfway house after burning down a kitchen you get taken to all different stuff you know like not quite basket weaving but it might as well be and one of them was a poetry workshop and the woman who ran it was um, Rosie Lugosi. She's great. Um, she was just very complimentary. And I've, I mean, she's quite complimentary to everyone. So you realised afterwards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it kept, yeah. And then I just started performing. It was off my head on diazepam, so I wasn't scared. And you said then that you discovered that you were working class or you realised that you were working class. That's something that I wanted to ask you about because it seems, as we you know, even saw in the Twitter bio that I was reading out, that you put identity kind of front and centre in yeah, your yeah. work at the moment. But that isn't something that you've always done. That was something that you came to at a particular point in time and realised mm. that it was important. How did that happen? Yeah, sure. Well, I just, I mean, once upon a time, I just thought everyone was working class it was like there's just people with slightly nicer shoes and that was me and so I didn't realize there was a problem and then when I started doing the first show that I did was all about disability and I was like knocking about doing that and I was like oh my god and I just all of a sudden you know I was in networking situations and I was like there's people here have really lived a different life to me what's going on and I, I, I genuinely took that long to realize like the extent of like how different people are and I was like wow okay some people are really rich and that's not fair and then that became a part of your work yeah and also the world was crumbling around me so that helped yeah I noticed that (laughs) and the piece you're bringing to Unlimited is this is not a safe space and with that if you saw that title in isolation I've got this image of loads of um, Milo Yiannopoulos fanboys turning up in a bus happy (laughs) about your (laughs) breaking down of you know the overly PC safe spaces gone mad culture that you know these men seem obsessed but (laughs) I would presume I presume they they would be disappointed yeah they wouldn't get what they expect (laughs) yeah there's been people have said in reviews that it was the most the safest they've ever felt which is like oh okay yeah what the the title is getting at is one every, I interviewed like 80 people right for this piece um, 80 people on disability benefits and I was asking questions about like just life not you know it wasn't all about benefits and safety kept coming up even though I never mentioned it once people are creating safe spaces but the world is really not safe and that's why people have to create them all the time um, and but it also is about like risk taking I do think that there's like less risk taken because we're all shitting ourselves about funding and there's this what I think is like it's not real you know people think like oh funders want to fund stuff that doesn't slag the world off or doesn't slag the government off or doesn't slag them off and it's not true I'm more up for like more risk taken and I think people need to know that it's all right to do that you know is what kind of what you're saying that people make political calculations about the sort of I think people go a little bit fluffy. Yeah. Yeah, fluff things up a bit. And I did, in the first show, I, I was like, 
I made it really fluffy. What it does was that mean? like, no, to, like so it was your like back catalog. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it was, it was. I was basically going for like amputation comedy, which is a hard sell. And so to get to give like specifics, so like hard the hard sell, but a good niche. But a good <laughs> niche, isn't it? Yeah. Um, the the scene where I had have my leg cut off in it was a dream sequence with bubbles and someone out of the audience being a unicorn dancing about and all this and uh, I, you know that's very nice but my god it's fluffy isn't it so that people can stomach amputation and it's like do you know what audiences can handle more than you think all performers know about how how far you're meeting the audience you know like are you meeting them halfway or you're meeting them the whole way and you can sort of pull them towards you and keep them with you and I do it with comedy mm. and then you can kind of slap them around the face a little bit and they can cope with that and then you can put them back and it's you know and that's why people are saying oh it's a safe show it's just that I know how to keep the audience with me because I was brought up on doing gigs in pubs and hen parties and all that sort of thing I was brought up by hecklers and one of the things you you're speaking earlier about people kind of playing it safe with not wanting to criticize the government or wanting to criticize them in a very specific way and mm. one of the uh things i think you do with this show is you talk about i daniel blake and the uh ken loach film which was widely praised for being a sympathetic, oh, you know, yeah, very yeah. human portrayal of what it means to live on benefits, and you have a slightly different approach to. Well, that yeah, film. I do, I do the, the, I perform a piece called "I Am Not Daniel Blake." I mean, I'm sure that you know people listening like can tell from meeting me for five minutes now that I am happy that that film exists. But what pissed me off about it is that in order to capture like the empathy of part of society, Daniel Blake had to be a saint, you know? It's this like the deserving poor and the undeserving poor distinction and that annoys me. Like he didn't have a big telly, you know, he didn't do drugs, he didn't drink. Like his wife his wife had just died, like and he hadn't even started smoking, you know what I mean? <laughs> like just have a fuck mate, it's alright, you know. Catch yeah. one if you can't afford it. But yeah, to that yeah, that that film annoyed me because of the way it had to be in order to get praised and when you criticise that what response do you get from audiences and from people listening to you <laughs> oh all different things um, mate you get the the thing that you expect which is people saying people are very sniffy aren't they about resources now because the government's saying that there isn't much of it and we can't afford to look after people who, who need help which is rubbish so people are like oh if they're not helping themselves how, we, how can we help them and it tends to be people who don't have visceral experience of being around people who supposedly can't help themselves one person's trying isn't going to look like yours if you are a very different person to them and you've had a very different life that's part of the point of this show is to rather than going to people as statistics or you know as like even like Daniel Blake this is given like a real people and like real rounded characters because they're not even characters they're real people so I put the the interviews that I did with people like audio interviews and so I put the the real voices are in it I mean like the actual audio is piped into the room like I just think it's easier to empathize with people when you can hear like the stumble and bravado or the hiccups or you know you can sort of see eye to eye with them 
we're going to come back to talking a bit more about Unlimited later in the show. But now we're going to be listening to the answer to this episode's burning question. Every episode, we find an expert to answer a question that people perhaps hadn't thought to ask. And in this episode, the question that we're asking is perhaps one that people had thought to ask but just didn't know how to ask because something that people get really weird about is talking about disability. Jess Tom is our resident expert and I'm now going to let Jess introduce herself. Biscuit, hello, I'm Jess Biscuit. I'm uh, an artist and a writer, uh, Biscuit, and a part-time superhero, Biscuit, um, and I also have Tourette's syndrome. Biscuit, this is a neurological condition, Biscuit, that means I make movements and noises, Biscuit, I can't control, or ticks, Biscuit, Biscuit, and you can hear Biscuit, some of my regular ticks, Biscuit now, Biscuit, and the hedgehog, and cats, fuck it, sausage dog. You might be able to hear my chest banging tick, which is that sort of rhythmic and repetitive thud that's happening now, and now, <laughs> and now, uh, Biscuit. Uh, but don't worry, I'm wearing Biscuit uh, padded gloves to stop my knuckles and chest getting sore. Fuck it. But Biscuit, I'm going to talk about Toblerones having sex with the doormat. I mean, I hadn't planned to. <laughs> Beans. A biscuit. Um, and also, a biscuit, as it's a podcast, um, biscuit, it might be useful for me to audio describe myself. Um, I am a 30 something white woman of average build um, with curly brown hair and a very cool wheelchair. Sausage! I do love a cat, still indifferent to cats. Now, Jess is going to answer our burning question, which is, how should we, particularly able-bodied people, speak about disability? And you will hear producer Chica laughing in this clip because one of the first things that Jess says is that if she says something funny as part of her tics, then it is okay to laugh. The first thing is that I think we should talk about disability. I think disability is something that is often not talked about because people are frightened and scared of it and what it might mean. And it's also very important for, to me to separate impairment and disability. Often they are conflated uh, into meaning the same things, but, but they are not. Impairment is the sort of physical fact about someone's body. So um, my impairment is Tourette's syndrome. Biscuit, hair trail, biscuit, cats. My impairment is that I love cats. I mean, it's not. And I'm not technically sure whether that would constitute an impairment. But, so the impairment is the fact about your body. Fuck it. Disability, I understand that using the social model of disability. And that understands that it's normal for people to have bodies and minds that work in different ways. And for some people to have impairments and others not have impairments. What is disabling is a failure to consider different types of body and mind when we set things up. So it's the way that we organise society that is disabling, Biscuit, not people's bodies or minds. Biscuit, so for example, Biscuit, if I can't get into a building because it's surrounded by steps, um, traditional ways of thinking about disability would, would put the problem with me and with my legs and with my wheelchair. My wheelchair is a brilliant way to get around, uh, Biscuit, and it's totally liberating. Biscuit, uh, Biscuit, and I'm less disabled when I use it. What is the social model would understand the steps as the disabling factor, uh, Biscuit. Or if I um, call a telephone helpline and they have an automatic system, Biscuit, it's not my ticks and my biscuits that are the problem, it's the fact that that system hasn't been configured with uh, people who have communication impairments or 
uh, additional biscuits in mind. Biscuit the sausage! Uh, please press the donkey after the tone. Beep! Hey Siri, go and look up 14 things you could do with an Alan Hansen lookalike in Milton Keynes. <laughs> I mean, that's a very bespoke request. Biscuit, cats, hedgehog. So for me, being open about disability is key. Biscuit, people are not disabled by their bodies, but by uh, a failure to consider difference. They, and by physical, environmental, structural and attitudinal barriers. Biscuit, hello beads. Biscuit, I've worked for the last 20 years with children and young people and continue to work with them. One of the things that I've really seen through that is how key making sure that children have uh, open and positive experiences with, disa with disabled people and around disability. Um, biscuit children are often curious and ask questions and open and honest in a way that adults sometimes feel uncomfortable about being. Um, biscuit children will often ask me why biscuits, they will ask me how I sleep, they might ask me uh, if they held my hands still or tied me up, what would, what would happen. Um, and they're also often curious about whether people laugh at me. I think children are really open and curious. They ask those questions. And most importantly, they listen to the answers. I think as we get older, we get more uncomfortable or we, worst of all, we think we know all the answers already. Biscuit cats! I think one of the things that's really interesting for me is that often children will instinctively be using the, so the social model. So rather than saying, I want to change that person or that other child, they will think about how people can be included. Um, biscuit, there is a point where I feel that we start losing that, uh, that comfort in asking questions and that natural inclusive approach that I think many children have. Biscuit, um, and I'm curious about when that happens and how we can stop it happening. And I think conversations are a key part of that and nurturing curiosity. I think lots of parents' instinctive reaction to children's questions about disability, particularly when it relates to strangers, is to, to shush them, to squash that. And why would we do that? We don't squash children's curiosity in any other area of life. I think really the way that we can do children and the next generation the best service is to get really comfortable talking about different types of body and mind. Because it's important that children understand themselves. If you have thought and considered disability and what being a disabled person really means and having this get having experiences with disabled people that go outside of the sort of tragic, very stereotyped presentations that you often see in the, me in the media, get, if you then experience uh, impairment or if your life or circumstances changes, get, as it will for most people at some point, it makes that process easier to manage. Um, when we think about disability, people often think about loss, loss of identity. And actually, it's like, what's exciting is what you gain, the perspective that you gain, the identity that you can gain, and Biscuit, the, um, the community that you can gain, and the solidarity you can gain. And obviously, this isn't about saying have a positive attitude, but it is about saying understand where the problem really lies. And that's not with us. Biscuit. Cats! It's, it's with Salman Rushdie, Margaret Thatcher and, and a Tory tortoise in Hastings. So, Biscuit, I used to think attitude change was a long, drawn-out process. One of the things that Tourette's Zero has really taught me is that it, ha it can actually happen very quickly. And it often starts with a conversation, a question or a shared laugh. 
And from my experience, creativity and art and humour are great ways of shifting people's thinking and getting them to understand different viewpoints. I know that my life has been radically transformed by embracing creativity and um, incorporating that into how I think about myself. Um, I used to find it very hard to talk about Tourette's and couldn't talk about Tourette's without tears and certainly would have probably struggled to identify as a disabled person. Um, probably because I thought, like, thought of it at that point as a club. Like, you know, I think sometimes it can feel, be, feel, feel really weird to start saying that you are disabled. Actually, now saying I'm disabled makes me feel strong. It makes me feel powerful. It means that I can give and receive solidarity. And it says nothing negative about my body. It's simply, or, or, or doesn't diminish me in any way. It simply acknowledges the barriers that I face in my life um, because of um, how things are set up. Sausage! Um, the idea that you can make a piece of art and it can catalyse change is something that I really believe in. And an example of that was our first stage show backstage in Biscuitland, which was a funny, warm, joyful show. The idea of that show was to talk about my experiences with Tourette's, but particularly talk about how difficult I found it to access live performance and to promote a way of thinking about, a way of presenting theatre and live performance that's called relaxed performance that takes a relaxed approach to sound and noise coming from the audience, relaxes some of those rules that might uh, create invisible barriers for people who, uh, whose bodies work in a non-normative way. Biscuit, for me, I think relaxed performances are really great for everybody because they give everyone that freedom to respond naturally and that is the essence of live performance. There's amazing power in the things that we make and the way that we present um, disabled people within that. And that doesn't mean that everything has to be about disability to have a really positive impact on the world. Fuck it, biscuit. So it was a conversation with my co-founder Matthew Partney that first changed, started to change and transform my attitude to my own body. Um, he described Tourette's uh, as a crazy language generating machine and told me that not doing something creative with it would be wasteful. And for me that was the first time when I'd really been able to hear and appreciate that my experiences as a disabled person might have value and that the way my brain works might give me a creative advantage. Beans! Fuck! Uh, biscuit. And, and that has gone on to radically transform my life. And I also know that I have the confidence to be an artist because I saw other disabled artists making funny, challenging, exciting work. Um, and so it's important to see yourself represented in cultural spaces. And way too few people at the moment um, and say that that's the case. I do lots of work with uh, young people with Tourette's and disabled young people more generally because I think that building that confidence and having positive memories and experiences to draw on when times might be tough and you might experience barriers can really help you feel resilient to that. And I know that personally that I had an experience um, last year of disability hate crime and I was very aware that in the midst of that experience, just get having creative tools uh, to draw on, having a community to seek advice from, and having uh, ways to process and share my experience, making it visible to others, made me feel strong at a time where I felt that loads of my power had been taken away. A few years back, 
I think I would have had a very different response and that would have had a much more damaging impact on me. And so I think working with young people and working with disabled people or people with who recently acquired uh, impairments feels essential to help them live in a world that can often be disabling. Thanks. I sprayed a cat with a sprinkler and a horse. I did not. I've never done that. <laughs> really, have not done that. Biscuitland is the sort of is the way that I describe the surreal world uh, biscuit that my ticks create around me. And um, but camel land, dromedary land, sausage dog land. I mean, it's quite possible that at the moment calling it sausage dog land would, or cat land, cat land would have been equally appropriate. Hedgehog world, Tiskily broadband, Donkey Kong speaking. Tiskily broadband <laughs> is my favourite. It's so banal. <laughs> so one of the things that Jess was speaking there at the beginning, she was talking about this distinction that she makes between impairment, which she describes as kind of the physical fact, physical facts of how your body and your mind perhaps works, compared to disability, which is a social the world construct. being not set up for you. Yeah, yeah is yeah. that kind of a distinction that you? Oh yeah, with? I mean, I think that's everyone's you know that's pretty um widespread sort of understanding at the moment and i think you know people disagree and stuff but um people have got lots of differences haven't they and the world just happens to be set up for the mainstream and we need to get on that and i think the next generation are really getting on it mm. the less people please and aren't they they're just like get this shit done <laughs> which is nice you know it's terrifying to be around them but um but yeah which is good but you know obviously we need to we need to sort it out yeah in using the word disabled rather than impairment is what you're doing to highlight the social element i think it's using the word impairment or disabled I think really that doesn't... You've got to explain the whole deal, yeah. haven't you? Because someone is just like, yeah, whatever, it's a new word. Yeah. We'll start using that new word and not really think about it. But it's describing what, you, what you're on about with it, why. And perhaps like, even having this conversation, it can tell that I'm kind of like trying to make sure that I use the right words and one thing that <laughs> yeah. I, which I think is very normal and a good thing to do, yeah, obviously. Yeah. But one thing that I was interested in is when you became an amputee, which I think was about five years yeah, ago, yeah, yeah. did you suddenly know how to talk about these things and how to talk <laughs> no, to no. other people <laughs> about their bodies? Of like, or did you, did you have these same... Oh, All of a sudden, my me leg came off and my head was full of this knowledge. No, uh, no, of course not. And I'm someone who's like, I'm not very up on these. Like, I'm really good at understanding the world and going like, this needs to be sorted and this needs to be sorted. But I'm also from, you know, a sort of a, a culture and a pub and a family that reads Viz, you know? And like, so, no, of course not. Definitely not. Although my dad, my dad had one leg as well, but, you know, he was even worse than Viz. So, yeah, no. <laughs> No, I didn't, I didn't have a clue. And then I sort of came across all of it through disability arts. Mm. So it was like, oh, this is interesting. This is what I want to do. You know, this is important. So, yeah, that's my angle, Ari. And I think words are important, but it's the understanding behind them, isn't it? So you need to... But I think it's important that people feel, you know, just calm down <laughs> and trying to make people feel comfortable enough to do that, you know, so that you're not tipping toeing about and... Everyone knows that it's like you can't talk for more than 18 minutes without stumbling into a leg pun and that number's cut in half when you're talking to someone with one leg, you know, so... Which I suppose is where Jess speaks about children in that clip and says that 
Although, I mean, children are just quite rude as well. Like, rude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd like entirely think it was a great thing for everyone to go around with like a child's level of like <laughs> candor about the bodies of the people around yeah, them. just force right to yeah. this yeah i've had kids ask brilliant i mean i prefer kids reaction to it because i'm sort of quite forthright but like often when i'm talking to kids or talking to people about stuff i'll say but do remember that i don't represent all amputees you know i'm just like one person and not everyone is going to find it funny when you ask if you kept the bone you know (laughs) (laughs) other people might feel terrible Uh, i was gonna say i think most children are probably um extremely jealous of the fact that the bottom half of your right hand leg is covered in glitter and stars (laughs) most people aren't allowed to wear to school (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah whenever kids come up I give them something off my leg so there's less and less (laughs) but (laughs) so I've got uh, the bottom half my right leg looks more like me than my left leg because it's covered in basically if you dipped a false leg in PVA glue and then rolled it in a really exciting disco (laughs) bed sit that's what it looks like next interviewee is someone who i can't imagine has ever come into close contact with glitter and also who i can't imagine ever getting particularly stressed about terminology or anyone else because i've rarely listened to someone as calm and in control sounding as baluji shravasta baluji shravasta is a blind musician who is performing at unlimited festival with his orchestra inside vision Baluji has a rock star CV, despite not having a rock star personality. He's performed on Top of the Pops five times and with Coldplay at the closing ceremonies of the Paralympics. And his claim to fame that comes closest to my heart is that it is his sitar on maybe the greatest massive attack song of all time, Teardrop. Hello, my name is Baluji Srivastava and I'm a musician a born musician because when I was one and a half years old I could sing the Bollywood songs. When I was six years old I went to my first blind school. There I learned to play an instrument called Taisi Akoto. Headmaster when he saw that I could sing and play so nicely he used me for raising the funds for the school. I started playing this Taisi Akoto with blind school orchestra which was orchestra of about 80 to 85 blind people. Because everybody was involved, music was compulsory subject there. You learn. <laughs> learning is all your life. Even at this age, I'm still learning. Being a blind person, it's very difficult to see what somebody's playing. So I learned my own ways, and they criticized me for uh, the way I was putting my hands on tabla, the way I was putting hands on my sitar, the way I was holding, because my teacher was also blind. Playing with sighted people or blind people, for me, music is the same. To me, music should not be seen. It's a, I wouldn't say it's a wrong way. It's a different way of reading music and playing sight reading but blind people cannot read so if we have to learn the same music we have to learn it and we have to remember it and we have to play it. it's much more difficult for us to me feeling of the music comes by hearing and playing a full musician should be able to hear 
perfectly and improvise as well. What is lacking in Western world is improvisation. When I play with classical musicians, they just don't want to improvise. In Indian music, composition is not that important. Most of it is improvisation. I started teaching when I was 11 years old. I used to teach sighted people mostly. And most of the people were much older than me. And I used to say, get out of my class if you can't sing, if you can't do this, because I couldn't really understand what I can do, why can't they do it? When I came here, I used to listen to music in taxis, a different kind of music, Arabic, Turkish, Indian, of course. And I used to think, why can't I have an international orchestra in London? This is the best place, metropolitan place. So I thought, okay, let's find blind people. And it's my family, my second family. So I found a lot of blind people who were musicians, like some, some people in the street, some people going to the conferences in RNIB or all different places. And I found they are musicians and I said, okay, I'm just going to find some blind people and compose a group. Would you like to come? And they all accepted. So we got opera singer, and we have got blues singers, guitarists, keyboard players. I cleverly designed this orchestra in such a way that I don't have to do very much. And I said to them that you tell your stories and you play your songs and we will accompany you. So that's how I designed this orchestra called Inner Vision. Inner Vision Orchestra is because it's necessary. As a blind person, you have to struggle even much more than sighted people. Once all blind people are performing with everybody else, with sighted people like normal, Inner Vision Orchestra is not needed. My piece of advice to not only to blind people, to everybody, Music is in everything. Music is in the air. You can hear the wind outside. Rain is musical. Air, earth, water, sky, even silent space is music. So there is no, nothing without music. Everybody is musician. Never afraid touching an instrument. Never afraid singing. Sing in the bathroom as you sing in the bathroom, sing in the room sing everywhere, sing on the stage, and come with me and sing in Wembley. So one of the things that Valuji was talking about there was this idea that a blind orchestra isn't in some sense a necessary thing if we get to a point where blind musicians are part of all orchestras. I mean, Jackie, this must be a question that comes up a lot, whether a festival like Unlimited, for example, which is a festival highlighting the successes of disabled artists, is kind of, in a way, aiming towards its own extinction. The, <laughs> the idea is that it will make itself redundant by being so successful in promoting disabled artists. Oh, I see, yeah. What do you um, reckon? 
No, that's like saying that um, there's no re- like there's no need to have pride because once like everyone's assimilated and there's no homophobia, then why celebrate people? Because it's not just about assimilation, is it? It's not just about you know acceptance. It's about celebrating stuff as well and going like, look, this is a thing in society. This is different. This is like enjoyable because people have got unique voices. So no, I disagree. I wish and we... also, it's quite optimistic, isn't it? Like, <laughs> yeah, I wish we had Baluji here so you could have an argument it out in yeah. person. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that it means having a festival like Unlimited set up in the way it is is that it is, by virtue of the way it's designed, this incredibly eclectic festival. Because the thing that unites the performers isn't an interest in a particular genre or style or anything really, other than um, this identity. Jackie, you've been leafing through the programme. I you, have, yeah. <laughs> would you agree that it's got all bases covered? <laughs> all bases covered? <laughs> now, that's a, that's a hard one to do. It hasn't got all bases covered because nothing can do that. But it is, it is like really eclectic. The thing that I want to go after my show is um, there's an Afrofuturist performance in the bar and it's um, queer people of colour, which is great and it sounds really exciting. So I'm going to go to that after mine. And there's some immersive things that I want to go to. It's very sweary, isn't it? This um, Yeah, this I noticed festival. that. There's a lot of asterisks in the yeah. titles of shows. <laughs> so, Jackie, we've already heard about what you're bringing to Unlimited. We're now going to play a couple of clips from both Jess and Baluji about what they have planned. At Unlimited, I am bringing a neurodiverse presentation of Samuel Beckett's short play, Not I. Let's get um, I wanted to challenge the idea that there was only a certain type of work that was suitable for to be relaxed. Uh, and to do this, take one of the most sort of challenging and intense theatrical experience, which is uh, of Beckett's Not I, both for audience and perfor- performer, and to think about how we then make that accessible at every level, but without reducing the intensity. Let's get cats! What is going to happen is a very fast, very urgent monologue, repetitive monologue, um, of a woman, probably towards the end of her life, um, who is possibly experiencing a massive brain event, is definitely a neurodiverse person who's been practically speechless all her days, but who has these sudden explosions of language where she can't recognise her own voice. Um, and there's so many lines within Not I as a play that deeply resonate with my lived experience. Um, sausage. Obviously, Beckett's words are there, but also my biscuits. It is definitely Becky with biscuits. Cats! This Unlimited project has come and I'm very, very thankful for Unlimited to give us this chance. And we are going to perform this time in Queen Elizabeth Hall, which is a dream for me. And the next dream is the Festival Hall. Next dream is Royal Albert Hall, Wembley Stadium, <laughs> wherever I can perform, yes. And looking on Beyond Unlimited, you've got a new show in the works. Yeah, yeah. The next show is very different. Um, It's called Nice One, where This Is Not Safe Space was very spiky and sort of sarcastic. Nice One is a immersive installation where there's going to be, um, it's still an R&D, five or six rooms where you go in and you have an experience. And the point of it is trying to figure a way to make an audience member feel like they're cared for in society. And how would you say it figures on the whole, you know, you said you went from 
fluffy with your first show to more spiky Spicy. then with your second where are you heading with like I've... a vibe with the first <laughs> I think that it's like a more mature version so I've sort of I've figured out how to you know meet the audience all of the way and how to meet the audience you know not very much of the way and then this is sort of meeting the, the audience half of the way I think Jackie thank you so much for coming You're welcome. in thanks for having me and um, we'll see you at Unlimited Fab Thanks for listening to this episode of Think Aloud. We'll be back next month in September to find out what it takes to be a curator and how they do their job. And I personally feel being part of the email chains preparing for this particular podcast episode that I volunteered to host some sort of, you know, culturally orientated war negotiations because we will have a half dozen of the South Bank Centre's extremely high-flying and opinionated curators duking it out around a single table. So please make it worth both their while and my while by sending your questions about curation to the podcast. And you can do that either by finding the Southbank Centre on Twitter at Southbank Centre or me on Twitter at Harriet FL and they'll end up in the same inbox. And Chica will be refreshing our email inbox relentlessly to collect your questions. You can find her at podcasts at southbankcentre.co.uk. Amazing. And if you have been reading like a demon working your way through the Man Booker back catalogue since last week's episode on the Golden Man Booker Prize, may I suggest that you also subscribe to Think Aloud's rival podcast, which is the Southbank Centre's admittedly very excellent books podcast. I'm Ted Hodgkinson, presenter of Southbank Centre's book podcast. And in our latest episode, I talk about mental health with Jordan Stevens from Rizzle Kicks. And we feature author Matt Haig talking about anxiety and why he sleeps next to the fridge. You can find that plus other episodes of Think Aloud at southbankcentre.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Podcasts.